Hello, Internet. It's time for another astounding episode of Never Stay Dead. I'm Matthew Derrigish, and I'm here with my sleepy co-host... Damien, Sleepy Reader 666 happy to be here. How many episodes have we done? This will be our 15th episode. You think we'd nail an intro by now? <laughs> We're pikers compared to your other... How many episodes have you done on Untold Tales of Spider-Man? Oh god, I don't know. Many. Um, what's a piker? <laughs> you know, I don't know where that word comes from, but it means someone who's kind of a, a small fry compared to other people. You know, it's funny because you're using this lingo and I don't know some of the words and Kane gives me uh, crud for being the old man a lot, so <laughs> can't win. I didn't even know Piker had gone away, <laughs> but it probably came from my father. There's some things that I know from my parents that might have already gone away long ago. It's probably regional. And there's also regional things, yeah. All right. Well, we're here today to discuss, I don't know how far we're going to go in, but uh, essentially the beginning of Warren Ellis's and Derek Robinson's masterpiece, Transmetropolitan. Uh-huh. I agree that we are going to discuss Transmetropolitan. <laughs> I, I'm not saying necessarily it is a masterpiece. I think it is their uh, masterpiece, if you will. It is It is taken as, I mean, it's referred to as a masterpiece. Although not as o- as often as some of the other big Vertigo books, but it's pretty frequently referred to, you know, in a, uh, as a classic or such. Right, and so I was a little taken aback because I originally read it, though my memory is not there, in about the year two thousand six, I want to say. But the series ran from nineteen ninety seven to two thousand two, and I thought it ran earlier i thought it was a purely 90s book so right but it's got its start in its 90s there's kind of always a blurring of things you know things from the early 2000s often look like the 90s anyway right um and and i i guess i can't really say it's not a masterpiece because i've now read the first three volumes and i enjoyed them i I think I would have to read the whole thing before I completely judged it from a, on a upon high as a you know sure full critical view. And I'm gonna be honest, my memory isn't there, so I'm doing a reread currently, and I'm on the sixth volume. Right. Uh, but so I'm curious, earlier you said this is kind of like uh, potato chips. Well, each individual. So I was only going to read the first volume in our original plan because, mm-hmm. um, you know, life is busy and everything. <laughs> and there's so many comics to read. And I wasn't I had tried maybe one issue of Metropolitan years ago and, and was not excited. Right. And it probably was issue three or four <laughs> or two uh, somewhere in there. I don't think it was the very first issue. Or maybe it was even two issues. But anyway, mm-hmm. Um. But once I got started, it was kind of fun. Once I got past that original first three issues, huh. and then, you know, I'm I'm Mr. Sci-Fi Guy, and it, it really, the next, what, Is eight that... issues just sort of delved into every crazy idea Warren Ellis has, or many of his crazy ideas that he has about this kind of future transhuman cyberpunk-ish, not entirely cyberpunk, but sort of cyberpunk kind of world. I um, thought this... I don't, to me, this fits as cyberpunk, definitely. I mean, 
Well, definitions of cyberpunk are pretty loose. Uh, I mine are very tied to what William Gibson did, and okay, this is not that kind of thing. First of all, who's William Gibson? For those who may not know in our audience, I mean, of course. (laughs) William Gibson is the first and most famous cyberpunk writer in prose. Necromancer, was it? Uh, Neuromancer was his first book. Sorry, I'm kind of trying to get my cred back. It won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the Philip K. Dick Award um, in the year it came out, which I believe is 1984. It got the Dickie? It got the Dick, yes. The big Dick. And... um, so to win all, those are the three biggest awards, I suppose, in science fiction. And he yeah. won them all. It was his first novel. And it created this whole genre about um, a future where kind of, the, originally the idea is street punks have access to technology and they make their own street uses for technology. Um, and so in 1984, the idea of computer hackers and such was newish. And so he had people who could jack their brains into computers and travel through the cyberspace, which is a term he invented and an idea he invented before the Internet was a known thing. Travel through cyberspace and steal information and do other nasty things. And he had AIs, uh, artificial intelligences coming to life and acting in godlike ways, controlling the fates of humans from behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff in a... A, a kind of uh, um, something that pre- predecessor of this is Blade Runner. That Blade Runner vision of the dirty future was also a part of cyberpunk. So this has that kind of Blade Runner dirty future feeling. And there are corners of it where people are transcending into nanotechnology and, and the like. But it's also kind of simplistic in its computer aspects, even for 1990, late 1990s. Right. The use of technology is kind of bizarre. Um, so to, to give people some... I'm guessing that Warren Ellis still used a manual typewriter at this point and watched yeah. a lot of TV. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder. I also wonder how much because part of the reason I think Transmet um, works well and works beyond the way most Ellis pieces do is Derek Robinson, the amount of detail and love put into nearly every panel of Transmet is something above that in which you see most comics. I absolutely agree, both in the detail of the backgrounds and the world around him and the expressions and the physical posturing of the characters and everything is is a very exceptional level art. It's inked in kind of an old-fashioned style, so I wonder if modern readers might not notice it first because they're, you know, oh, it's so much black ink and stuff. But but it's very, it's exceptionally good art. Um, and in particular, whenever there's a hyper close-up on uh, Spider Jerusalem is the main character. We haven't even gone that far yet. Right. And he has these, I'll just say the word iconic, glasses where one's like this uh, green uh, rectangle and the other's this red circle. Uh, for the lenses and when, right. whenever there's a close-up you can usually see the reaction of someone in the oh what's that called the 180 shot uh-huh. of it so you can see the reaction in his glasses usually or right. something and it's it, it, yeah it's a good you know those glasses were supposed to have some special technological aspect to them 
that at least in the 18 or so issues I've read, they never went into. I mean, they can, like, take pictures and whatnot. Right. But they don't, like, record video. They take pictures, which is mm-hmm. kind of funny when you think about it. Yeah. Um, That's why I joke that I imagine the writer of this, given the way a lot of this is written, is someone who had cable TV and a typewriter. And he's kind of imagining a futuristic journalist based on those tools. But there's that, it's funny you'd say that because there's that whole issue with kind of the disdain for daytime TV and everything. Yes, but he watches a huge amount. <laughs> right. And you can, te- you can tell that was accessed by watching a chunk of right. TV. That I think time. that reflects perhaps the writer's own life. There's a, so there's an ho- entire issue, probably like issue five or seven or eight, which is just spider robinson watching crazy future tv mostly we're seeing spider robinson's face spider robinson i keep saying spider that's a science fiction writer from the 70s um and his real name was not spider either but so i always thought spider jerusalem came from spider robinson he used to write he used to write uh columns in some science fiction magazine that were really sort of gonzo hippie science fiction news columns hmm. so i wonder i i strongly suspect that um that that's part of the genesis of spider jerusalem who is also very clearly uncle duke from uh Doonesbury slash hunter s thompson the famous gonzo journalist of the 60s and 70s who wrote um what's it called fear and loathing Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, or Ella. Yeah, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I think it's called. Uh, Amongst others. Right, which is funny because when I first uh, read through this, I had no idea who Hunter S. Thompson was or anything. And learning about him later, my picture of Drew, like I get the connection, but it's not really uh-huh. the same thing in my mind. I, and I know I'm wrong, I guess, but... Uh-huh. Well, no, it's one of the influences, but it's a very strong, clear influence. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson was famous for doing massive amounts of drugs, writing columns and articles that no one else would, you know, in a way, injecting himself into the news that in a way that no one else would do, um, just tearing through places and creating chaos rather than reporting on the news and pulling guns on people and wanting to live out in the mountains and not see anyone else. I think he lived somewhere in Colorado um, and had a compound with possibly with several wives. I'm not sure. But anyway, so all kinds of wild stuff. And he was he was okay. the biggest writer at Rolling Stone magazine at certain points and did their journal, you know, covered elections. In fact, he had a series of famous books covering uh, the uh, what do you call them? The big convention where the party elects their nominees. He oh. did that. And that's a big part of what I've read here, too. Okay. Yeah. So that all lines up. So don't mind me on that, I guess. I should. Yeah. Well, no, you didn't know. And there's no reason, you know, everyone knows different things. Um, you always know a lot more about stuff. <laughs> like, for instance, in our last conversation, uh, I, when I was editing it, I realized how much more you really knew about animation than I realized, and we only probably skimmed the surface of your knowledge there. Oh, well. But anyway, so, I mean, that's just to make my point, I don't want to make you feel bad that I know about William Gibson and Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, no, no. They're more my generation and my thing because I was into 
into novels and journalism at different points in my life. Totally. But the inter another interesting side is, so in the very first issue, he looks a lot like Alan Moore. Right. And then he takes a shower with a futuristic shower that he says, get rid of everything or something like that. Yeah. And so the shower removes not only all, all his hair, but all his clothing. <laughs> and he comes out this skinny little guy with tattoos all over him instead of this guy with giant shaggy hair and a giant beard that we saw in the first, you know, 10 pages or something. Right. And I've heard some contention about that being um, Alan Moore or one of Robertson's connections. But... Right. What's interesting, but it does remind you of Alan Moore, even if it's well, not connected to him. If you read Planetary, uh -huh. there's an issue where, uh, you know, it looks like Jerusalem, but it doesn't speak like Jerusalem comes uh -huh. up. That's clearly kind of also a self-insert for Moore as well. Not quite on the Grant Morrison Animal Man uh, level, which right. we covered, uh, not on the podcast, but on YouTube. A while back. An insert for Moore or an insert for Warren Ellis? Uh, an insert for Ellis. And so the, the Jerusalem tie there to the creator, I, I think is or for Moore. For Moore, sorry. Uh -huh. I, I misspoke there. Because the um, other thing is there's a lot of drawings by Robertson where it kind of looks like Grant Morrison. Yeah, I wonder about Jerusalem. that. Jerusalem. I wonder if, if they're just throwing in the pot all the sort of cantankerous, oddball writer characters they can think of and stirring them around. Well, I feel like they're taking some liberties with that because there's also um, an issue that comes up with these different takes on uh, Spider-Jerusalem in the culture at the time. And they have uh -huh. different all-star artists uh, drawing these different sections. And I, I wonder if there's just some play some nods with the community there because they could get away with it. Because you have to remember, uh, Transmet, you know, was coming out when Vertigo was big enough. Though I think originally wasn't a Vertigo title, but then became one, if memory serves. Right. It, it, ver uh, the editors at Vertigo experimented with a science fiction label, yeah. uh, which is leaving my mind right now. So Transmet was under the science fiction label for a year, Mm -hmm. uh, I should know it because I've lots. I bought lots of right? those. Sorry, was it Eclipse? That's, no, that's Eclipse was an old '80s indie yeah, well, um, brand. I tried, um, but something like that. And and they published a bunch of comics, mostly by prose science fiction writers. And tr but Transmet was under that rubric. And when that folded, they just moved Transmet after a year into Vertigo. He Helix. It was called Helix. Yeah. There were a lot of good comics under Helix, but I think it was, I don't know. It, they might have published too much at once and the market wasn't ready for it. It's funny. I'm looking and I'm only seeing 14 titles, which I mean, I guess if it all came out about the same time would be a yeah. lot. Maybe but... it seemed like a lot to me. 14 titles in one year for, for a, a, a side label of DC Comics. Yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah, it lo looks mostly to be within a year's span, maybe a little past, but yeah. I've never heard of most of these. Cyberella? Hard shaking. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I have picked up a number of issues of Cyberella in 50-cent bins, uh, maybe that. even 25-cent bins. <laughs> um, I think I came to it because an, a prose author that I actually um, 
was a big fan of and, and knew personally named Lucius Shepard tried a series called starts Vermillion? with a V. Vermillion, yeah. And I think he was not he was not clicking with comics that well, even though he was a great writer. So that might have been pr- part of the problem with Helix, that they brought in too many outside writers all at once. It's a different form, and it usually takes people a few issues or a couple yeah. books to kind of yeah. like get it. And a lot of these people might have been like friends of Rachel Pollock's because she came from that science fiction world and, mm. and succeeded at comics. So maybe, I don't know, that's just a guess. Well, but, uh, but that's such a more fascinating way to like access a line of comics than like just, I mean, a lot of what Image does is just grabs known creators and be like, go for it, which is good. Right. But I, I'd like, I feel like we've done that now and I'd like a little more. Something like this. Though Transmet really was basically that model, right? Like Warren right. Ellis and Robinson. I mean, they're known quantities. And to just kind right. of... Right. Warren Ellis... I mean, Warren Ellis was just beginning to hit his stride, I think. He had a lot of experience in the early 90s writing a lot of superhero comics. And then in the late 90s, wasn't he also... That's when he was hitting his stride with the authority? Yes. And he was hitting his stride with this and... A year or two after he started this, he started Planetary. So he was hitting a, a peak period for him. Maybe not his only peak period, but a peak period. I mean, I think his main stuff is authority coming out of his run with Stormwatch. And then this. And then, uh, why am I spacing? Planetary. Yeah. I mean, outside of that, I can't. I mean, I know he's done, he's done a lot of things. Well, but... if you randomly pick up Marvel Comics from like the mid nineties, you'll find a lot of Warren Ellis. Like I randomly picked up some Thor and there was Warren Ellis writing Thor. It wasn't very good, but it was, (laughs) I got excited for a minute. Oh, Warren Ellis writing Thor. This should be great. But no, it was before Warren Ellis really was Warren Ellis. Well, in coming out of college, I was a huge Warren Ellis fan. Then I started reading a lot of his other stuff and it just didn't carry a lot of the magic that I got from his more known works. By other stuff, do you mean like, Avatar uh, Press stuff and uh, oh, and some of the Marvel uh, yeah. DC stuff he did. He did some stuff at Ultimate Com. I mean, Mar- all the Marvel Ultimate line, yeah, some did, of which he, was good and some of which was just kind of hacked out. I thought. Yeah, and I mean, he, he did a lot of decent stuff, but I mean, like, I don't know. There's something like Transmet and Planetary that was seminal that that doesn't right. carry over. In some ways, you know, you can't expect that from everything, but. Uh, I've had better luck following authors in the past. Uh, I've got to say, you know, within my not complete Warren Ellis reading, well, coming to Transmet, I don't recognize Warren Ellis. Right. I did want it's, to get there, yeah. Um, this is a very, very wordy comic, and it's all about someone who spews and spews and spews words, usually f- with lots of obscenities and everything, and it... It's uh, it's it's the opposite of what I think of Warren Ellis, where he picks and chooses his words very carefully and lets a lot of the action play out without words in a lot of um, comic, a lot of his best comics other than this one. Right. Um, and I don't want to try to be dragging Ellis like Ellis did a lot of great stuff, needed some great stuff with Marvel, you know, later. Yeah. Um, 
Well, it seems like he goes through periods of doing work that he really cares about and, and also doing work that he's just kind of hacking out. Right. And I think when you're talking about authors and comics, I mean, he, he seems to crank out more than most yes. by a factor. So Yeah, he's one of the more prolific, except every once in a while he kind of disappears. I think he goes and writes for some other medium. I saw that he's written a lot of video game stuff. Oh, really? And I know he has a novel or two out there, which sure. it's interesting. Both oh. he and Alan Moore and some others, when they go and do novels, they're not very successful. Um, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. But, I seem to recall a short book that I had that was something about the inspiration of Jack Kirby that I seem to remember he wrote, but I could be wrong. Anyways. Uh, but Oh, a nonfiction book. Oh, that would be cool. I think it was semi... It was a weird, surreal... It was oh. a hard read. Um, so anyways, diving back to Transmit, I, I kind of want to talk about these first three issues a bit because in my mind, the first three issues is... It's been... Transmet's been collected a couple different ways. The way I have right. it collected, there's a really thin trade that's the first three issues that oh, okay. um, I believe is a perfect graphic novel. I think like uh-huh. if you're gonna if you're gonna try to give someone kind of the medium of comics and give them like ten quick reads, I'd put that in there. Wow. Okay. Um, and I'm getting um, the sense I, I, it, it does not. make a complete story. <laughs> I, and it gives you <laughs> yes gives you a introduction to the character of spider jerusalem as this gonzo cantankerous way over the top in his bad behavior um mm-hmm. like when he wants to get past a guard who is blocking him he puts a cigarette out in the guard's eye as a way to get through right and uh, he pulls guns on people, not in those three issues, but he has a gun that gives people... Uh, it's the bowel disruptor. Bowel disruptor. It gives people strange bowel movements and prolapses and things. Um, it's pretty endearing. He, he, uh, <laughs> he is a bad boy times 10. Um, yes. And he gets away with it for some reason. People just... Well, cause just he's... because his books... It's it's he's a fantasy character, right? Of the bad boy writer, uh, uh, he's as much of a fantasy as Conan or Superman in my mind. I I wanted to talk about this, and you mentioned this before we started recording in our Conan episode uh, when we were um, blipped, uh, y- where I had to edit out something where my daughter came in. Yeah, right. Uh, y- you were ta- talking a bit about how you find Conan to be like Superman that he's a power fantasy, right? To me, in this moment right now, Spider Jerusalem is a really interesting power fantasy to be reading because. You mean in this Donald Trump era in the United States? Well, Donald, I mean, Donald Trump really reflects kind of the smiler who is one of the antagonists in the book, who's the president um, in part. He's not the beast? (laughs) The beast is the other one who. Right. No, but smiler. are you saying Trump is more like the Smiler than the Beast? I, don't... I, you know, it's a little hard. I mean, this is written in '90s politics, where either had kind of the right. gruff one or the one who is lying. Which right. take what you will. I mean, this is what written in the era of Bush, so give or take. It's, 
and it's set in America, but I feel like a lot of the politics have to do with Britain. And that's fair, right? I mean, that makes and sense. And I particularly feel that when we see the slum and it's all white people. Huh. Um, <laughs> they, they have a lot more slums with white people over in various parts of the United Kingdom than we do. Not that we don't have white slums, but I mean, an American writer writing about a slum in a city wouldn't have an all-white slum usually. <laughs> well, it's not all white. There's still the... Uh, um, the people, people with alien eyes and the alien eyes and all that yeah those who kind of foisted themselves out of mainstream society but what i was going to say is the power fantasy of spider jerusalem is like this weird liberal power fantasy that takes on some what we'd consider to be more conservative ideas now like he's shoving guns right. in people's faces but it's always right. to kind of advance uh yeah, supposedly like, we're but, supposed to believe everything he does is okay because somehow it's helping people, even as right. he beats the up people, scum. disrupts their bowels, walks over their bodies, kicks them in the face. Right, but he has a very, like, it's very perfectly liberal in that it's uh -huh. not super progressive. It, it, it toes a mainline stream, but it's open to other people, but judgmental of them at the same time. Right, I mean, so this... It reminds me of the um, there's a certain breed of sophomoric people in their early 20s who mm. want to be writers who are, you know, in their fantasy selves are this incredible rebel against, you know, what have you got? I'm against it. Incredible rebels against society and full of, you know, witty banter, putting everybody, everybody and everything down. As if somehow they live morally outside of the code of the rest of the world that they can judge. As a kid in college who was an yes. English major pushing comics wherever he could and got away with a <laughs> bunch of things because I, right. I, I had a certain sense of humor that hit the right buttons for the right people. Um, yeah, this worked for me on a level that coming to it now, it's not quite the same. And I can see kind of the flaws in it. Like, um, like, do you know the TV show, like, um, House? Or, yes. The Doctor, yes. Or kind of the, the lesser written versions of Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. It's the smartest man in the room who's so clever and can't be bothered. Right. He can be anything. rude to everyone else because he's always right. And good at what he does. Yes. Right. They need him, even though he's not a nice person. And I feel like this sung a little bit more special right. before that was kind of a known trope that's been put down. And the, the fantasy that if you were this sort of asshole 19-year-old who's good at words and mean to everybody, you would immediately get rich and famous and everyone would admire you. Right. It's sort of where I... He's like the Superman of rebel journalists. <laughs> well, but I feel there's a quality there of it's not that he's just mean to people, but he's mean to people in the sense that he knows better and he's going to point it out to them. And so they idolize him on a certain level, like he's thinking above them, which you kind of got to earlier, but I don't know. But he's not convincingly that. Uh, if if you look at what he actually does, he yeah. does so many horrific, mean and nasty things and we have he just assumes because he's superior to everyone that anyone he happens to put his cigarette out in their eyeball deserved it. But we have no reason to know that. Um, and yet at the same time, he's defending the downtrodden when he actually will trod on anyone and lives in a rich neighborhood, too. I mean, to some degree, 
it's hard for me to know what degree Warren Ellis is playing with all these elements, but he he enjoys them more than I do. And he was, I don't know how old he was when he wrote this, but I probably first read this when I was 38 or something. Mm-hmm. And I thought this, this is like a much more infantile version of um, Uncle Duke. As I, I always think of him <laughs> as Uncle Duke from Doonesbury rather than Spider-S Thompson. No, that's fair. I mean, that's... Because um, that was my first... I didn't know who's, who Uncle who's, um, Hunter S. Thompson was when I was a kid and I was reading Doonesbury. And then when I was, when I was the age of one of these uh, bratty college students, <laughs> that's when I read, actually read Hunter S. Thompson and thought it was really great. But I don't think I could read Hunter S. Thompson now and, and admire it so much. Right. And I don't, there's something, I mean, this is, it's hard to escape the sophomore qualities of Transmetropolitan, but they're done so gleefully and joyfully. And whereas like, we're comic book fans. So, I mean, whereas things line up to allow the protagonist to get out at the last second, uh, recognizing that here I feel is a skosh easier, but I feel like if we were less enamored, you'd see that more easily in your Superman, your Spider-Man, or what have you. Right. Well, and the so the so in the first three issues, he's introduced, he gets involved with this weird social thing going on where there are people who are rather than becoming trans to become male to female or whatever they're becoming yeah. trans from human to alien before um, i think this was before trans really was right so i mean trans people so. existed but it was yeah. not like a popular thing the way it is now or, or commonly talked about but um but somehow th- their leader has mucked things up in ways that I didn't fully understand that causes the powers that be to decide to come to stomp on their heads. And then he writes a story live that goes out on the feed of something right. that everyone's reading at once and they all call in and complain to the mayor or the police. And so they withdraw and stop stomping on everybody. But pretty much it's too late. They've already stomped on everybody. But he's this big hero and he's... It's also the... Along with the uh, adolescent twenty-year-old fantasy, or not adult, the twenty-year-old writer fantasy, this is also the journalist fantasy that the journalists are the most important people in the world who save and change the world, and a lot of journalists would probably like that that fantasy. Right, and Jerusalem's big thing is he doesn't care how he gets or what he does, but he's after the truth. Right. What's really real. And Although what we're shown of his behavior, it's hard to believe he really can get at the truth by the, by what he does. He right. just sort of magically gets at the truth by going around and kicking people in the balls and taking drugs. And somehow that leads to the truth. Well, I mean, for a lot of people Conan, who take drugs. Because he's the Conan of journalism, so yeah. of course he's right. <laughs> um, well, I, I wanted to say, so in this first volume, these first three issues, so the trans thing is transhumanism where... These people have kind of melded their DNA with this alien DNA. Right. And the aliens are, you know, the gray man, the you know, big eye, kind of white finger kind of thing. They also seem like the what I've read about the squatters in London. Mm-hmm. They're, and they're called transients. Yeah. Which is playing on the fact that they're homeless people and they're trying to transform themselves into aliens. Right. And it's funny that... Um, Spider is defending them because he actually has a lot of problems with their leader, uh, Fred. Uh, Fred Christ or something? Yeah, Fred Christ. What... That's right. 
Um, who he was friends with at one point, but sees right through and knows what a bullshitter the guy is. Right. He, he knows. And of course he's right. The guy is a bullshitter. And he's just using this transience as a way to get laid a lot. Like every eight hours he has to get laid again. Right. But also <laughs> kind of as a power play, like this guy is creating this movement and doing this whole yeah. thing, which speaks to a lot of points. But I felt like this was almost um, trying to play off of something like a Stonewall situation or something where, yeah, the police came down and knocked down the door. But the public opinion shifted because the story gets out there and they see right. how the cops are doing ill. And that's a theme that comes up throughout the story a lot is abuse of power and the cops doing the wrong thing. And uh, Spider needs to report the, the truth. The, the Fred Christ guy and his transients show up again and as political players who are not doing the right thing either. Right, and that's something that's interesting. Them and the Foglets, who are these people who... Different sort of transhumanism, where right. they ascend into kind of this, like, cloud of, like... Nanoparticles, I take it to be. Yeah, so they're consciousness... You use the word nanotechnology, but it seemed to be made of if, nanotechnology. Yeah, fits that idea. Right? So it was a lot like... That was the most, in my mind, cyberpunk idea, where the, the whole, like... In cyberpunk, transhumanism is where we're all going to transfer our brains into the cloud or into the into a machine, mm -hmm. um, and we don't need our meat bodies anymore. The ghost um, in the, the machine. There's a lot of cy ghost in the machine is a cyberpunk movie. Um, there's a lot of cyberpunk books and movies that deal with that transcendence of the body. Yeah, like us. Um, but those too. those people were presented as, I guess, as cool. Mm -hmm. It was more like, yeah, I'm friends with, with people who are swingers, too, and people who are transsexuals and people who like their bodies to be clouds. <laughs> right. I mean, there was that, um, but there's also a leader in that movement where Spider was a friend, but they had this kind of tilted relationship. Right. But he has a tilted relationship with everyone, so I didn't think it was a big deal at the time that's fair maybe they come back and i don't know i think there's about a bit about there's too much with him um but um where's i going with that it was uh, part about how the transients showed up and were making their political plays with the smiler and then you that reminded you of of those people right i don't know the, i don't know As, but i mean to the cyberpunk stuff i mean there's also like little things like people install like um Yelena, who's uh, one of his assistants, one of Spider's assistants throughout this. Is that the second one? Yes. Um, okay, yeah. She gets something installed so she can just, like, call people or activate phones with a phone. Uh -huh. I don't um, think I've got to that part or either that or it. And then right past me. Spider tells everyone close to him to, like, take anti-cancer pills so that they can smoke profusely. Yes. Now there is, you know... There were, at the university I went to, there was cafes in different buildings and the cafe in the building where, um, and this, since I went to school so long ago, you could smoke in public. The cafe where all the uh, English majors went to was full of people smoking. Weird. And um, that anti-cancer thing, because, oh, you can't really be a writer if you're not smoking cigarettes and stuff. That's a real old school idea of the writer, the hard drinking writer puffing on cigarettes and banging away on it, her typewriter, his typewriter. Yeah. Wow. Um, but so let me say, so 
you really love those first three issues. I think they're and, tighter, and I also feel like that power play we were talking about. Like, I feel you talk about the cigarette part, but the fact where this the last chunk of this is Spider watching all these um, transients getting beaten by the police, but he's up on a rooftop and he's typing away, and the feed's going right. live. And it's actually written fairly eloquently in a way that actually yes. works, which is fairly impressive. Right. For a moment, my cynicism turned off and I was able to go with the the writer Superman fantasy there and get all excited that he's sitting there writing about what's happening and it's changing events and making right and then making the, rights get wrong it, in the moment that he writes it. And as it's going, the police eventually kind of get this notice, you can tell, and they walk right. away. They all walk away. Um, so, I mean, he affects it. And the thing is, is like this this moment is on Ellis completely because if those words didn't like ring for me, if I didn't like if I wasn't somewhat moved by them, the story wouldn't sing. But because it's written right, it works. And it's such a, oh my, like, I'm imagining sitting down and scripting that and being like, okay, I have to write that, like, that, putting yourself in that position as a writer. True. He definitely, yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of balls to say, okay, this is a really great writer that I'm writing about in my story. And here's some of his writing. (laughs) Right. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think yeah. those first That's a very good point, which, because of my cynicism about everything else, I probably didn't think about very much as I read it. And I'll say this. If a story has an ending that feels earned and, like, works with everything else, I can forgive a lot. Um, because there's not enough good endings. Well, I think the ending is made even better by the fact that in the... What do you call it? The denouement. After the climax, where he solves the problem, and then you have the next you know, sort of an outro to the story. In the outro to the story, he gets his ass kicked by the police. That's <laughs> true. Don't you ever do that again. And that gives it some more grounding, and it shows that he was successful in a way that it, it sort of emphasizes in a certain grim way his success and the uh, power that he scares the police enough that they had to come beat him up. Yeah. Of course, if they were smart, they would have just come and killed him because it's not going to stop him to get beaten up. (laughs) Right. But so because I was feeling so cynical about this fantasy writer thing, I liked the following maybe uh, eight eight episodes that were mostly riffs. Like we were talking about the one episode was entirely him watching TV. Another episode was just taking this assistant of his to see her boyfriend get turned into smoke mm-hmm. and uh, and make love with another pillar of smoke <laughs> as they watch. Right. So, and w- what I liked about it, well, A, I, lo- I love just throwing in the kitchen sink of ideas that he was doing, and that was really ballsy. Like, it was awfully ballsy to do a whole episode about watching TV, for instance. Um, I also liked that during those... Um, episodes he was not lionized as some wonderful guy he was just this bizarro character in this bizarro world and I kind of like that better and and then in the third volume which I've read is where the big political campaign thing comes in Mm -hmm. where it's where he's again supposed in some way that is not I feel like the the reasoning behind it so far seems weaker 
but maybe it'll seem stronger if I read further volumes. The reasoning as to what good he's doing by what he does, by his cynical reporting on these campaigns. There is something I saw when I was in college, uh, and I was going through a lot of these Vertigo things, and it was like, Transmit is porn for journalist majors, um, Fables is porn for English majors, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, Sandman was like porn for, um, oh, what's it, theological majors. Um, yeah, Sandman's also for English majors, I would say. Yeah, honestly, it's true. <laughs> um, probably more so with Sandman, but I get the Fables one too. Right. Uh, man. Vertigo turned out a lot of great stuff, didn't it? Um, yeah, a lot of great porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> and maybe but, it'll change. I think I'm now going to read all the volumes. So maybe we can have a follow-up wow. episode. Right, that's funny, considering you're not. It doesn't sound. Yeah, because at first, I, I'm kind of I kind of annoyed at the character and find him a bit repetitive at times. Yeah. Um, the whole shtick about drugs and everything gets kind of boring in a way. But on the other hand, I like I said to you, I've, I'm starting to find it. Once I got past a certain point, it just became addictive like potato chips. They were kind of easy to swallow the next one and the next one and the next one. And I'm kind of, while each individual episode of this political arc that I've read wasn't super interesting to me, I'm still kind of interesting to see where it's all going and, and does uh, Warren Ellis have some points to make that i'm not foreseeing that he's going to make that's interesting um i think what's interesting too is spider jerusalem as far as comic books go is a very kind of different animal because we're used to having these aspirational characters where there's a certain amount of empathy and spider jerusalem is not that at all and it's right. y- you want to see what happens next but it's kind of a sick pleasure right like you kind of hope something bad happens to him too well, I haven't read a lot of 2000 AD, the British science fiction magazine, yeah, but I feel enough. like that is filled with lack of empathy, um, sort of anti-heroes who who beat people up and kill people and do that kind of thing, and yet you're somehow supposed to consider them the better ones, <laughs> um, like Judge Dredd and... Uh, I was going to say, what else um, is there but Judge Dredd? <laughs> oh, there's something else that I've read a lot of. Oh, what's it called? It's about a guy... A soldier who's blue skinned and his friends who have died have their the chips from their brains inside of his his gun and his helmet. Sounds interesting. It's fun, but it's it's very nihilistic. This this has this brings a bit of that vibe into a long form comic, whereas uh, uh, the 2000 AD things are all these really short stories. Yeah, so uh, did you also get to the uh, issue with the reservations of kind of time periods? Yes, that was another one that was just, it really didn't matter whether um, Spider-Jerusalem was good or bad in that one. It was just a really cool vision of something they might do in the future. Cool and cruel. I mean, it was not... Cool concept. Like, that's a fun story. The, the idea right. is that there's these reservations of these various time eras, and people would give up their lives to live in these reservations as per the people of the day. Right. So they're not going to have the long life or the pleasant life or anything. And th- In fact, even though they volunteered, their memory is wiped of the real world that they came from. And they have to live by the rules. That, so there's people who volunteer to be like in the Incan one, and people get sacrificed all the time. 
I, the missing component to that story was kind of a why anyone would volunteer for right. that. Um, yeah, it was just presented as a cool idea that this is like, it's almost like living museum pieces that we're just preserving the past by creating this little zone where people live separate and, you know, they live like the Aztecs did or they live like medieval people did or, or whatever. And another riff, interesting riff, was on people who get their bodies frozen or their heads frozen in hopes that they'll be revived in the future. Mm -hmm. And so in this future, I guess they can do it easily. So they revive people, but then they don't give a crap about them. And they just <laughs> let them wander off into these homeless shelters, basically. And, and they're shell-shocked for the rest of their lives. I wonder if that's going to come back because there's been a few references to it. There's one, that that one lady they do kind of follow a bit at least for a while, and she's uh, she's interesting. It's funny because they talk about them being shell shocked by the future because you know they're coming from the 1980s or whatever, and suddenly it's right. the future. But I'm like, all of them, and I, yeah. it just kind of no one can adjust. And the and the world that uh, Ellis presents us is wildly uneven. I mean, there are the people who are living as mist. But there's other people who are pretty much living like we do now. Um, right. You know, maybe with better TVs or something. <laughs> right, right, right. And that's interesting. It's funny to me, too, because there's a juxtaposition because I've been watching Cowboy Bebop again recently. Um, and there's an episode in there where they deal with one of the main characters who was from the past frozen and come back. And so she becomes a bounty hunter to pay off her debt that she accrued while being frozen. Right. <laughs> um it, it, that's, that's ironic because the idea of freezing usually is oh you'll put a hundred dollars in the bank and by the time they wake you up it'll be worth a hundred million or something from right uh <laughs> but anyway sorry that's a total digression oh no, no no that's fine it was just funny to see this kind of like different juxtaposition on that idea but like whereas in one because both deal with an issue or an episode one feels so much more fleshed out and the other one doesn't, but they both try to play sympathy in both to like a female character who is dealing with an illness that got woken up. And it's just right. interesting to see this kind of play. But it's also interesting, too, because that in that issue, Spider Jerusalem is a lot more uh, subdued and kind. Right. Than he is pretty much anywhere else. Well, I felt all of this series of riffs that we got did not form a coherent future. It was more, that's why I said like it's throwing in the kitchen sink. It was just like, yeah. Warren Ellis has this idea. Okay, and do an issue on that. I have this other idea and this other idea all about a, an uncomfortable future, but not necessarily all fitting together in the same future very well. Yeah, and I feel like that could work, but the problem is he doesn't then later bump it up against each other. Like we don't see the foglets and the uh, alien transits kind of interact as much or there's a issue where he deals with all these crazy religious ideas that are all very right christian inspired right he goes um, to basically a religious convention like the the dealer's room in a convention and right. insults everybody selling their different religions <laughs> right and that's the whole episode basically and like that that's a fun one but then we don't kind of really see much of those people later and well that fits my riff theory he's yeah. just riffing yeah and it just feels like as the series continues and as they try to go into the election all the people being represented whatnot are the people that we would have met but they don't like there's some natural ways to connect but it just doesn't pull through and right. so 
I don't know. Like, I, I like Transmit, but in rereading it, I'm finding a lot more holes and a lot less to it. And it's really funny because I was looking up some reviews for Transmit before we uh, got on. And for a lot of people, it was this... It was big for the group of people kind of early 2000s, late 90s that would read graphic novels and not comics. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it's funny because it's really... On pure literary merit, it definitely has more holes. Well, and pure logic merit, but in, right. in terms of... And again, I think it depends a lot on your age. If Another appeal might be if you're kind of going through your punk rock phase or something like that, because that whole attitude that he's like a punk rock journalist, he could be viewed as that way. Yeah. Even though he's based on this hippie journalist. But <laughs> Was he? Is that a hippie? Does that, that doesn't fit my picture of a hippie at all. Well, Hunter S. Thompson was of the hippie era. He wasn't really a hippie, but okay. his drug taking was very much a 60s kind of. Hey, tons of people hey, take drugs. if I'm going to have a trip, I'll just pop it in my mouth and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I may have cut you off because suddenly I couldn't hear you. Oh, it's all good. I, I was just saying, you know, plenty of people take drugs that aren't hippies. Yeah. But, well, at the time, it was pretty much people who were hippies taking drugs yeah. in the... 60s and 70s i mean that was pretty much the defining thing <laughs> i thought it was all like free love man and being all chill with long hair and headbands and tie-dye shirts where did the tie-dye shirts and long hair come from just from doing drugs i think I mean, and the and the free love came from doing drugs too <laughs> well, maybe not for everybody but that was uh in my mind and originally like i i know it hasn't played out that way over the years but originally when punk first came out it was kind of against doing drugs it was just we don't we'll just we'll just drink alcohol we don't need all these drugs that you guys but of course it turned out everyone was heroin addicts just like all the old hippies were well so almost this this part that i'm liking is maybe an interlude only has a little bit to do with all the plot that develops afterwards right Um, if i'm following what you're saying because in volume three, the whole thing is devoted to the the nominating nomination convention kind of circuit. Yeah, and I mean, it goes down some different routes, and it does play with some ideas, but it does become much more about the political angle than the sci-fi stuff. So. And I wonder if that's going to rub me the wrong way again, um, because if I don't think his political analysis is very clever, but he's telling me how clever he is... <laughs> Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That that will be a bit annoying. Well, he, he does have some failings along the way, which I don't know. I find it interesting, but it is, uh, I don't know. It's funny to me because um, with my, uh, I have a lot of friends that don't read comics a ton. But about the two comics I've gotten people to read semi-regularly are Transmetropolitan and Preacher. Uh-huh. And going back through Transmet, I honestly... Uh, I don't know. It's good. It's fun, but it's not quite to the level that I remember it being. Yeah. Well, I think as your friends get older, you might be recommending different things to them. Like that makes sense because most of your adult life has been in your 20s. Um, I haven't read Preacher yet, so I don't know if that applies to Preacher. I don't I completely didn't even know of the existence of Preacher during its heyday. I don't know how I missed that. And and now it's intimidating because it's this big long series that I'd have to really. It's like to. only sixty issues. Oh, well, the Transmet is probably only sixty yeah, issues. That's exactly. That's it's that that's ten graphic novels. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, 
give up. I'm busy that. reading, you know, bad Batman books that are coming out tomorrow. I, I don't have time for this. <laughs> Just think, if you read one less superhero book a week, it would only take you uh, a little over a year, a little over a year to get through it. Well, another factor is when something is completed, then sometimes I think, well, I can read it anytime, so I can procrastinate on that. Oh, yeah, we all fall into Which that Which isn't trap. logical, um, because the things that are ongoing right now, I could read it anytime once they're done. And there's, a, there's an allure to getting something that's, that you know is complete. So if you like it, you can read the whole thing. It's true. You know, I really liked the three-parter. I forgot that it was three-parters. The three-parter involving his head his wife's frozen head and when when he kills some people who come into his apartment trying to kill him there's a good liberal yeah someone's coming to my apartment so i kill them that's uh, that's as liberal as as any non-liberal texas law you've got there hey um, i i live in liberal <laughs> land but we got to make your day law too i mean uh-huh. people are pretty liberal up till you get to about their doorstep <laughs> anyway he kills a bunch of people but then it turns out his wife from not from the grave, but from her frozen head situation, has uh, has set a trap for him where he loses his insurance. And I guess if you don't have your insurance, you're not protected from the police in this world, which I thought was a cool idea. And I think it ends with him throwing his wife's frozen head into a river. So I'm wondering if we'll see his wife again. Probably. It also involves this crazy intelligence-enhanced police dog, which I found hilarious, but... If you really follow the logic of that, then you'd have a whole constituency of animals who've had their intelligence amped up. Right. And shouldn't a good liberal want to worry about their rights? <laughs> well, when it's a tough... But all he does is stomach. castrate them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, 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 it's a fascinating read, and there's nothing quite like it. There is nothing quite like it. And I think that's why I'll keep reading it, because I... Like, it's, it has that potato chip effect. There's nothing else like it. I'm just sort of curious, where else can this go? What else can they do? Yeah, no. So in your memory, when you read it all the way to the end, back in your youthful days, so were you satisfied by it by the time it hit the end? Or was it more the journey that that you enjoyed? Um, I, I remember liking it. I remember thinking the ending was all right, but, you know, it didn't meet the high notes of the series. But that was fine. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think because uh, now that we're talking about it within Vertigo, even like what are the satisfying endings of Vertigo? And Preacher definitely had one. I don't know how I feel about Sandman's ending. I really need to go back to that because it's very circuitous yeah. and bizarre. Um, I the the big one that I hear is a lot, I know a lot of people really like Why the Last Man, and particularly for the ending. And I hate the ending in Why the Last Man. That's something that I'm really worried about with Saga is I like Brian K. Vaughn, but I don't think he's ever written a particularly great ending to a long-form story. It doesn't seem designed to really have an ending. So I take Saga's, I definitely assume that I'm not going to be wowed by the ending. I I think Paper Girls, I don't know if you're reading that, also by Brian K. Vaughn. You kind of put both on hiatus, right? With its very complex, I don't think Paper Girls is on any real high. I just so haven't, I haven't remember month. seeing it for a couple months now. So oh, I I've been getting. I got it last month, and I think last month. Yeah, well, I was getting it. Maybe I missed an issue though. Yeah. So, um, but that in that is so plot heavy. You really expect some clever conclusion to it all, which I don't know if he can pull off. 
I don't know that he can either because I don't know if he knows where he's going with it yet. Like, it's been all over the place, literally. Right, but all the time travel loops and tricks implies a, a master plan behind it all. I don't, I, For me, anyway. Time travel is one of those things when it's played on this level, I feels like almost an out. There's very few stories I feel actually play with time travel in a very um, a narratively interesting way. Uh, well, they usually end with something looping back on itself, and you're surprised. Oh, that person really is this person, or whatever. He's already kind of um, played that, though. Which is trite, but that's how they often go. Yeah. Time travel. So we both like and question this book, I would say, in our own different ways. I mean, I think it's a really great comic that you should check out. It's just funny because I I know it kind of has this prestige amongst a certain number of people and i used to be one of those people and reading it again i still like it i still would hold it up but it is not to the level that i remember it being well i think individual issues are in individual moments like it's got brilliant moments it's got brilliant art it's full of energy and interesting stuff but to me from what i've read so far it doesn't all hold together that well I would have, from its reputation, I would have expected more. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you were like me and read it as probably an older person, you um, you might at first just dismiss it. But if you if you give it more of a chance, I think you'll find more of its charms also. I can see that. And I think that's a big part of it. Is I think the sci-fi is the more charming bit of it. And the politics is interesting, especially right now to be right. reading. But it is also... Uh, you can see the power of fantasy in it which makes it less of a political thriller because i feel like the best political thrillers make you feel like everyone sucks by the end of it now if if any way this reflects who warren ellison warren ellis not ellison warren ellis is i would not want to be a friend of his because another subtext here is the person who seems to treat you lousy use you and abuse you is actually the hero (laughs) Yeah. And that kind of person I avoid. And I, I would like, you know, I, there's an intro in, in the in the first volume of the version I have, you know, mentioned by, uh, oh, who's the writer? By um, Garth Innes saying that Warren Ellis doesn't trust anyone who's nice. And that's a nice excuse for being a dick all the time and then supposedly being a good person despite being a dick. I think... There comes a point where being a dick, you really are a dick, and that's what you are, if you know what I mean. No, I, I hear you. And Warren, Warren doesn't like nice things. He distrusts nice people. They make him suspicious, and I know how he feels. It's something yeah. I could relate to in my 20s. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I mean, there's some truth there, and then you go too far, and there, you meet these people who are just users, and whatever their politics are, and, and they, they don't have to be... Uh, a capitalist to be a user you know what i mean that they can be a a deadhead hippie who always bums everything off of everybody and and never helps anyone out while saying they're all for peace and love there's just all there's a lot of the world is full of these people who who claim who are just selfish but claim a moral high ground spider robbins uh, spider jerusalem <laughs> seems like that kind of person to me <laughs> He is, but he does have genuine moments of compassion at time, which makes him more compelling. Yeah, so. before he then does something awful to someone else the next moment. Right, but that, like, 
I don't know. It, it's like um, if someone gives you. It's like an excuse for being considered a good guy to occasionally have compassion. I well, I think it makes them more compelling because if a character is giving you what you want out of them all the time, it's just kind of expected. But mm-hmm. when there's these moments that you can eke out and then you want from it, you almost feel like you have to work for it or see where it's going to be earned. It makes more of a guessing game or puzzle. And that makes it more compelling because you have to engage with it. It's not yeah, that's just, true. It's not just Peter Parker yeah. getting taken advantage of because he's too nice every time or whatever it is. That is true. Um, and that's what sometimes makes these kinds of very selfish people successful, I think. Oh, yeah. Their brief moments of seeming human. Uh, (laughs) i don't um sorry i i keep wanting to attack this book even though i'm liking it well that's part of it is that the book wants you to attack it it's very antagonistic and it wants to push everyone's buttons yeah which i see to me that's again my 20s it's perfectly natural i relate to it i have no problem with it i get the mentality but i feel like i've more or less moved on as a person from a lot of that But I can still respond to it. Like, I get it. And it's one of those, like, I don't know. It's like you could know that it's pushy or let it push your buttons. But, like, once you know it's there and you just enjoy the ride, like, mm-hmm. uh, it's not as big of a deal. I don't know. It, I, I can definitely see a personality check not, you know, making it through this book. I wonder how this reads to someone who has a teenager as a child. <laughs> Maybe I'll find out Which someday. Which will both be there someday. <laughs> anyway, it was a cool choice, um, even though it's just like Conan and Superman. Just like. Exactly. <laughs> well, we'll probably still be alive by the next episode. Which will be, we've decided that we will read some, we don't know exactly which stories yet, but some of the prime Will Eisner spirit stories right. that, that we will pluck out of some of the um, the reprints, the Warren, Warren Magazine reprints of the spirit. So prepare yourself for that. Yeah, I'll have to prepare myself. It'll be a bit of a comic book history. It'll probably be another one that you say, eh, what was the big deal about this? <laughs> I, I can't. I know what the big deal is. I know how foundational it is. I can't walk away from that. Okay, we'll, we'll be back. <laughs> <laughs>